You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Last week, you'll remember Pastor Jonathan mentioned that chapters 46 to 48 in Genesis are essentially about the story about, of how the, the people of Israel end up in the land of Egypt. And really, the, the whole story of Joseph is that how do they get from the land back into uh, back into Egypt? So today is the end of that journey, uh, and today brings us kind of to that that point um, in the story that that transition where uh, you desire to feel a sense of um, resolution, fulfillment, uh, a, a sense of like this is good and ending well, and it does that. And at the same time, it opens up to what ends up being the defining moments so that Jonathan talked about it, the defining moment in Israel's history, which is the Exodus. So Genesis provides, provides a context for what we see coming with the, the people of Israel. So the big question, though, is, is how did we get here? What have we seen uh, and what have we experienced up to this point in the book? Well, how do we get here? Well, um, three southern boys got together, gathered some families, and they said, hey, let's plant a church in the coldest place on earth. And then they said, hey, you know what? Let's preach through the toughest book in the Bible when we do that. And so three years later, in at least three different locations and a myriad of preachers standing behind the pulpit. We end up at Genesis 49 and 50. But before all of that, God created the heavens and the earth. And having done so, he formed it and he filled it with plants and fruit trees and the sun and the moon and the stars and muskrats and sturgeon and chickadees. And it sounds a lot like Minnesota. And then he crowns all of it with the creation of man in whom his spirit would dwell, who would display what God is like and would accomplish God's purposes on earth. And then God creates a garden. And he puts man in the garden to function as prophet, who would proclaim the law of God, the word of God, to function as priest, who would cultivate the worship of God, and to function as king, over the domain who would protect it and cultivate it and exercise the authority of God over it. And then God took a seat as if to say, all the good that he intended to accomplish in this initial act of creation has been brought to completion. But Adam faithlessly fails in his duties as prophet, priest, and king by disobeying God's law and failing to protect the garden kingdom. And in so doing, he breaks covenant with God, breaks relationship with God. And so God enters the scene and he communicates curses over creation and humanity and, and the snake. And in the midst of it all, God promises a rescuer, a snake crusher who would come from the line of Eve. And what we see in Genesis 4 through 11 is essentially worldwide rebellion against God. 
Cain offers unlawful sacrifice, and then he kills his brother, and it gets worse, and eventually God purges the earth of wickedness through the flood. And then in Babel, we, hit, we see a direct uh, uh, going against God's purposes of being fruitful and multiplying in the form of Babel. Instead of accomplishing God's mission, the people gather together and say, let's stay together. Worldwide rebellion. And so in Genesis chapter 11, God scatters all the peoples of the earth from Babel through giving them various languages. And right here we have a transition. Instead of worldwide, it focuses on one family, the family of Abraham or Abram. And God calls Abraham away from his home at the age of 75 years on a journey that ends up being about 1,100 miles to a land that he is totally unfamiliar with. And God covenants with Abraham saying, I will make your family great. I will cause you to be fruitful and multiply. And through you, all the nations that have been scattered will be blessed. And God promises a land for Abraham and his children. And he commits to the covenant in this form. A sacrifice is offered, and God walks between the animals, as if to say, if I do not fulfill this, let this happen to me. God then extends his covenant promises through Abraham to Isaac and somewhat miraculously provides a wife from the family for Isaac. And it really ends up being the the longest recording of a marriage arrangement in the entire Bible, which there are more of those than, than you would think. In this amazing woman, Rebecca does two important things. She provides an heir for the covenant blessing. And she protects God's plans by ensuring that the promises are passed on to their son Jacob, whom God had chosen. And then Jacob accidentally marries the wrong woman, which ends up being the right woman, God's woman. And then he marries the woman that he intended to marry. And between those two and and a few others, Jacob has 12 children. Having skipped a few details... This leads us to where we are in the story right now, which is the foot of Jacob's bed. So he's on his deathbed. His 12 sons are gathered before him. And Jacob is about to extend the blessings of Abraham and of Isaac to his children. Before we get into that, let's summarize the book. Uh, It's big. It's a wild story. It's a dysfunctional family. It's got... Uh, details and events that you could hardly imagine. I think it's helpful in such a big book to summarize it with a short statement. So, so here's, here's my shot at it. Um, I think Genesis is about God establishing his kingdom through his people according to his plan. I, I think that's how we summarize Genesis. It's a garden kingdom. Everything we see after ch- chapter 3 reflects Um, in some skewed, muted ways, the the garden um, that God had created. It's a kingdom manifest in a people. And all the events that we see, good and bad, are ultimately bound up in the plan of God. Genesis is is about God's kingdom being established through his people 
according to his plan. Ultimately, that he would be loved and treasured and worshipped on earth. So, with that summary, let's transition into the text. So, we've got four parts, uh, four scenes that we're going to walk through in these two chapters. So, part one, Israel is going to bless his sons. He will die. This is part two. He will die and is buried. Part three is Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers after the death of their father. And then the last part is Joseph's final requests before his death. So those are the four scenes. Number one, Israel passes the blessing of Abraham onto his 12 sons. Now, all of the elements that were in Abraham's blessing and then seen again in Isaac are there. Um, The call to be fruitful and multiply, to be a blessing to the nations, to control and benefit from the promised land. This is clearly... uh, a moving on in an expansion of of the blessings and the promise and purpose of God to these 12 sons. And here's what we need to know about these blessings. Uh, They're unique in in various ways to previous ones. One is that they are prophetic. So uh, Jacob calls his sons and he says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. That's 49.1. Um, It's not a dying man's last hope for his children. It's a, this is what's going to happen to you. It's prophetic and it's precise. We see precision in this that we have not seen up to this point and how this is going to be fulfilled. And then we see purpose for every son. We see uh, each son's role in the land, which they're not in, being defined and established in certain ways. Ways. Now, here's what we've seen so far with these 12 sons. A motley crew, the first three, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, have all acted shamefully. There's, there's nothing good recorded in Scripture of these three. They've all acted shamefully. Uh, and then there's Judah, who sells his brother Joseph into slavery, lies to his father about it, and then unwittingly puts his daughter-in-law in a position where she must sacrifice to provide an heir for him. But then, 38, 39, and on, we see this transformation in Judah. That he becomes a representative of his brothers in Egypt to what they later find out to be Joseph. We see this redemption of Judah. Joseph, the hero of the last ten chapters, acts as a type of the greater rescuer to come. And he endures great hardship, and in doing so provides safe entrance for his family into Egypt. And the lastly, the, the, the rest of the sons, the last seven sons, um, uh, uh, essentially they do whatever the leader is doing. Um, they go along with whatever who's, who seems to be talking the loudest. Um, so th- those are what we've seen with the sons so far. Uh, so what we'll do is we're going to see these blessings in four categories. So there's the first three, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and they receive blessed curses. So instead of receiving the first, firstborn blessing, Reuben is given a curse because of his wicked actions. Now, it is a blessed curse because he still has a future. That God, even to a man who does not deserve it in any way, God gives grace and says, I have a future for you and for your children in the land. The same thing with Simeon and Levi. Blessings to enter the land, but curses um, in the, for their time in it. The other seven 
in some way function over protection or provision. That their portions or their role as members of the 12 tribes will be uh, a means of providing for the people of Israel or protecting uh, the people of Israel. Then Joseph receives the right of the firstborn for the blessings of his faithfulness, which is really God-wrought faithfulness. Here's what it says. Here's what Jacob says to Joseph. The archers bitterly attacked him, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. They were held up by the mighty one of Jacob. And Joseph's blessings for his actions are deemed greater than the blessings that Jacob received from his father. Here's how, uh, that's how Jacob says it. He says, um, the blessings of your father are mighty. My blessings to you are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. And this is so good to see in Genesis that the, the blessings and promises of God, he, he doesn't, God doesn't back off of them or God doesn't hold he amplifies, like he annies up and advances his blessings and purposes for God's people. And Joseph sees this as, as receiving the right of the firstborn, even though he wasn't the firstborn. And then Judah is given the royal line. It runs through his family. It includes David, it includes Solomon, and ultimately Jesus and so I'm going to read a portion of it. And then what we're going to do is we're going to see in Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 19, we're going to see some language that matches Judah in Jesus, that we're going to see that what's promised to Judah is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So here's what, here's, here's what it says. Judah, your brother shall praise you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff. He was washed, Judah was washed in garments, in wine, in his vesture, in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine. Now here's a mashup of Revelation 5 and 19. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered, who sits on the throne. To him be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might. And his eyes are like flames of fire and his robe is dipped in blood. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's part one. The 12 boys receive blessings pertaining to the family and the land that Israel will dwell in. Having delivered this blessing to his children, Jacob asks the family to bring his, bring his body back to the land. So this is the second part. And this is not a small task. So first, this could be deemed offensive to the Pharaoh of Egypt. That Pharaoh's right-hand man, his father chose not to be buried in Egypt, but instead back home in the land. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that this is going to be the longest funeral possession to date. This is a long ways to travel to bring a body. And they do it. The sons promise to make this happen. And, and so here's how Jacob asks for this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it because there's something so good in it. Here's how he asks. This is Genesis 49, 28. 
All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what the Father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to them. He then commanded them and said to them, I'm to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There he buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, and there he buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. And you'll remember Leah. Leah was the one that Jacob did not want. Leah was the one that Jacob did not intend to marry. Leah is the one who in three children says, my husband does not love me, my husband neglects me. And then in Judah, finds her fulfillment in God, finds her identity in God. Guys, I cried as I saw this, that Leah received the honor of being buried in the tomb of the patriarchs, that, that Jacob sees God's blessing on Leah. And I, I think some of you might need this. Some of you might need to see that even when we are in places where we feel the distance of God, we feel like he is not next to us, that he is not with us. When we feel like we are not appreciated by those around us, when we feel alone, God is seeking to honor his people. And we can trust him with that. Leah trusted God with who she was, with her joy when she didn't have it, she looked to God, and, and ultimately, she received honor for her faith in God. I, I, I just think that's so beautiful. So that's how he asks. This is the tomb of the patriarchs. Jacob passes, and then Joseph, his brothers, and all of Egypt mourn 70 days. Jacob's body is embalmed, and, and Joseph requests that Jacob be buried with his forefathers. And the Pharaoh not only loves it, but frees the land of Egypt to go up with Israel to bury the father of Joseph. The text says it was a very great company. So that the Canaanites in the land, seeing Egypt come in, see it not as Israel mourning their father, but as Egypt mourning this man. That is how many Egyptians came out to help bury, help bury the father of Joseph. The Canaanites see it. The Egyptians go up into the land. And in all of this, we see two things. We see the exodus. I mean, this is a foreshadowing of the exodus that is to come. And that we see the Gentiles being blessed in the family of Abraham something that we don't see fulfilled until Jesus. But now we see this shadow of, of the Egyptians going up into the land with Israel. It's an amazing picture of how God will include all peoples in his plan. Now once the mourning has been brought to completion, 
Joseph and his brothers travel back to Egypt. This is the third part. Joseph reconciles with his brother. And the brothers conclude, well, our father has passed. It may be that Joseph will be less inclined to let us live, to forgive all the things that we've done against him. And so they, con- they concoct a story. They make something up. And uh, the reason I know that they make this up, or I'm confident that they make it up, is because uh, they tell him something that Joseph would have told him. So they say, or they, Jacob would have told him, they say to Joseph, your father said to us um, that when he passes, you need to forgive us. Something that Jacob would have said to Joseph if, if it were true. Uh, and ultimately, in all these blessings, there is this implicit reality that all the brothers will be there. And so they, they, go to, uh, they go to Joseph and they ask for forgiveness. And here's what Joseph says. Do not fear, for am I in the presence of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So instead of giving them justice, Joseph leans on the providence of God to forgive them. And in doing this, Joseph provides a framework for everything that has happened up to this point for God's people. So I don't think it's an accident that we have such a a unique phrase from Joseph at the end of Genesis. I think we can look through this verse and see all the difficult things that God's people have come, uh, come to experience through it. So answering the questions like, why did God wait so long to provide a child for Abraham and Sarah? Why did Jacob have to run from, uh, why did Jacob have to run to Laban's house away from his brother Esau? Why Jacob's wrestlings with God? What about Leah being neglected by her husband? Why did Tamar endure humiliation for the sake of Judah's household? Why Joseph's trials? Because God accomplishes his purposes for his people through difficult circumstances. Because waiting for a child refined Abraham's faith in God to fulfill his promise. Because running from Esau to Laban is how Jacob came to marry Leah. Because in her fourth child, Leah finds her satisfaction and identity in Yahweh. Because through Tamar's sacrificial humiliation, God brings about the snake crusher who will bless the nations. Because through the evil acts of Joseph's brothers, a way is made for their family to be brought down to Egypt where God wants them to be. Because for God's people, God accomplishes the most amazing things through the most difficult trials. And it's the same for you. God accomplishes amazing things in and through us in the most difficult circumstances. 
and we don't see it. We don't see it in the moment. Sometimes we don't see it for years, but that is how God works. In seeing this, Joseph forgives his brothers who wanted to kill him, who sold him into slavery. He forgives them. And not only does he forgive them, he provides for them and he protects them in the land of Egypt. Which leads us into the fourth part. Joseph's death and final request. So this is the last scene of the text. Um, it observes God's faithfulness to the end of Joseph's life and the end of Jacob's family in Egypt, the sons. So Joseph lives to be 110. He lives to see his great-great-grandchildren who would receive the blessing. Ephraim gets the blessing of the firstborn. That's his son. And on his deathbed, Joseph reminds his brothers and their children of God's plan to bring them out of Egypt. And he asks them to bring a casket with them when God brings them uh, when this happens. So Joseph is embalmed like Jacob, placed in a coffin, but he is not buried. And he's not actually buried until later on in the book of Joshua. Once the, uh, the people of God have settled the land, he's not buried until then. And so what I want to do is we're going to see two threads that have run through these four scenes. And we're going to talk about them as vantage points, okay? So we're going to talk about them from the ground, looking from the ground and looking from the air. So uh, when I was a child, my parents, on my birthday, would take me to an amazing place called Paul Bunyan Land. Now, if you've never been there, it's basically a mashup of six flags in Disney World. Just better. Um, and I loved it. Now, I have two specific experiences from Paul Bunyan Land. The first is the first time I walked in. So you walk in, and you see this 600-foot-tall Paul Bunyan, or thereabouts, and he talks to you. He says your name in a really deep, kind of creepy voice looking back on it now. He says your name, and it's like, oh, my goodness. Now, you're six years old, right? This is amazing. He says my name. And then, you, and then you look around and you see, and there's the gift shop. There's Paul Bunyan. There's Babe the Blue Ox. There's the entrance to the park. And having been there, I can talk about Paul Bunyan land from the experience of a participant. I can tell you what it's like to actually be there to sit on the really junky rides and, and all of that. Like, I can tell you, I can explain it to you. The second experience is I rode the helicopter over Paul Bunyan Land, which probably wasn't safe, but I rode it, and you got to see the whole park, which is now just a Coles, so it's not, it wasn't really that big. Uh, you see the whole park. Now, your perspective on the ground as a participant is totally different from in the air. In the air, you get to see... What it was, what the, or the, the creator of the park probably intended when he made it. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's where we're going to put this and this. And here's why we're going to do it. So you get kind of the, uh, the author's perspective, the creator's perspective on the park. And we're going to get the participant's perspective as well. And these two meet perfectly in the Bible. So for us, from the ground, 
the experience of God's people in Genesis 49 and 50. God's people trust him to do what he says he will do. Israel trusts God as he passes on the Abrahamic blessings to his children. He banks on God for the future of his family as he speaks prophetically over his kids and says, here's what's going to happen on you. To you, he, he banks on all the promises that God made to Abraham. And they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they all fulfill the role that they were promised. And the king who's promised to Judah, he happens. He redeems his people and he brings them into lasting rest. In the second part, God brings Jacob's family back to him in the land. Jacob trusts God to do this. He knows that Egypt will not be their lasting dwelling place. He trusts God to bring his family back to him. Joseph trusts God's sovereign plan in forgiving his brothers. He doesn't look at their remorse and say, well, I don't know if you're sorry enough. He banks on God and he forgives them. And then he trusts God's promises when he says, don't bury me in Egypt. But years later, when God brings our family back into the land, that's when I want you to bury me. On the ground, Genesis, all of it, and specifically in 49 and 50, God's people trust him to do what he says he's going to do, even when it doesn't seem like it. And then for us in the air, God faithfully accomplishes all of his purposes in establishing his kingdom through his family according to his plan. So you hover over Genesis 49 and 50 and you see the work of God bringing his people together, bringing them exactly where he wants them to be, and then promising to take them back. God fulfills all the blessings to Jacob's sons. God brings Jacob's family back to him. He faithfully uses all of Joseph's experiences to fill his purpose, fulfill his purposes of protecting the family. And he brings Joseph to his final resting place. And what we see is that these two perspectives, that these two realities meet in Jesus that he perfectly trusted the Father's plan and that ultimately in Jesus, the Father accomplishes all of his purposes. That in Christ, what the people of God are supposed to be is perfectly reflected. And in Christ, all that God intends to accomplish is finished. Which brings us to the table where we remember what Christ has done. We remember Jesus' trust up to his death. We remember his trust through the resurrection. And we think about what it means that the blood was spilt, that the body was broken. And we can trust Jesus. We can look to him now, not simply as Savior, but as friend who is with us in the most difficult trials. Let's pray.
Father, we recognize that we struggle with unbelief. That we at times feel like we embody it. That we do not have strength to look up. We do not have strength to remember your promises. We feel unbelief and we ask you to help our unbelief. That you would give us faith knowing that in every sorrow, Jesus is better, knowing that in every victory, Jesus is better. Help our unbelief. As we come to the table, let us remember a broken body, spilt blood, and what it means for the faith that Christ became for us and the faith that you provide through your spirit to us. Give us grace to trust you now. In your name, amen.